We have sung praises to our great God. We have read about this great Savior and how we ought to worship him from his word. Let us now go to God in prayer before we hear God's word. Let's pray. Father, we are struck by the words of that hymn. The lamb who was, who was for sinners slain is making all things new. All glory be to Christ. And Lord, we recognize this morning that at times we don't live like the new creations that you've set us out to be, the ones that you've worked in us a great salvation. So Father, we pray that we would realize that the old is now gone and the new has come because of Jesus Christ. Father, help us as a church to glory in Jesus Christ. God, that we wouldn't be held down, whether it be by tradition, sin, temptation, anything. Let us not be held down by what is old, but realize that you have come to make all things new. And Father, we praise you that you have given us new hearts, hearts that desire and beat for you because of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. So God, we pray that we would be a church that is marked out by the newness of life that you've given us in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, that our song would be from this church, all glory be to Christ. You deserve every ounce of glory because you came in lowly fashion. You lived a life we could not live. You died a death that we deserved. But God, you raised up Jesus from the dead, defeating sin and death and darkness, and now he is ascended at the right hand of you. And because of that, God, we can come to him in faith. We can turn away from the old life and declare all glory now be to Christ, not to ourselves. God, help us to give every bit of glory that you deserve to you. Help us to do that this morning. God, we pray not just for ourselves, but we pray at times for different churches here in this area. And this morning, Father, we want to pray for Westminster Church and their pastor, Bob Jacobs. God, we are so thankful for Pastor Bob and just ask, Lord, that you would be with him as he opens up your word this morning. God, we pray that the people of Westminster would be encouraged, that they would hope in the resurrection, that they would hope in Jesus. And God, we pray that that church would be marked out by a clear gospel message. And Lord, we ask as well, as we partner with them in so many different things as a church, we ask that you might use them for your glory and for your honor to make known Jesus here within the Black Hills. Father, thank you so much for that church. And God, we ask that if perhaps, if there are any in that church who do not know you as Lord and Savior this morning, that they would come to know you by the preaching of your word this morning. Please do that for your name's sake. God, at different times, we pray for nations, we pray for other countries. But this morning, Lord, I want to pray for a different thing. I want to pray for Cross Conference 2021. God, in this conference, there are over 6,000 students that will be gathering in Louisville, Kentucky this week to hear about your heart for the nations, to hear about your mission for those who have placed their faith in you. God, there are some of us from this church that are going to that conference, and we pray, God, that you might use that conference to spark in us and maybe in this church as well, to spark something where your name would be known to people that have not known who Jesus Christ is. So God, we pray 
for those individuals that are going there. We pray that you would bear fruit. But more than that, God, we pray that for the over 6,000 people that are planning on being there, you would put a spark in their hearts to go or to sin for the honor of your name. That people might be zealous for the gospel. That they would want to leave comfortable lives. That they would want to forsake all earthly possession for the sake of making Christ known. God, we pray for revival from this conference. God, we pray that you would use the speakers, you would use the panels, you would use the distributors, whoever it is, God, that you might cause revival throughout our world because of this particular conference. And God, we pray that there will be a time where every country, every unreached people group on earth has access and knows about the truth of the gospel. Because God, we know that in your word it says you will not return until that happens. So Father, we pray that we would be on mission to make sure that that happens as a church. God, as we come back and pray for ourselves, we pray for revival for us. God, we may come in here with so many different things in our hearts, so many things weighing us down. But God, you've told us that we can come to you to come to the living water that can satisfy. So God, we pray that you would revive our hearts with your word this morning. We pray that you would fill up Brother Aaron and just ask that you would fill him with your Holy Spirit so that he might preach what is true and what is right and what is good, what is beautiful. And ultimately, we pray that he would preach Christ, that people who may not know you here this morning would see Christ, would know Christ because of the preaching of your word. Father, return a crop a hundred, three hundred, a thousandfold more this morning because of the preaching of your word. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's a privilege to be here. I'm excited to be here. Just a quick summary or survey. How many of you have, uh, if you've been around church at all, you've ever read John 4, heard it preached on, favorite Bible study? How many of you are familiar with the story? Okay, great, great. My wife is also familiar with this story, and like many of you, it's a beloved story. So at one point, I preached this to another church a few years ago, and she warned me, don't screw this up. It's like a favorite passage. I know it, okay? So I'm not going to screw it up, I promise. But if you have never read it, if you're new here today, if you're new to the Bible, you're going to like it. It's a, just a fantastic story. And I was just reminded, I hadn't even thought of the connection to Isaiah. But John's gospel is one of these, he's one of the writers that just everywhere you look in his writing, he has these threads back to Old Testament stuff. So as I read it, reread it, restudied this week, put this back down, I thought this is really like three or four sermons but I promise I won't do that. We're just going to preach one sermon. Here's what I want you to do. Here's the best way to make this work. If you have a Bible open in front of you or a phone app, if that's uh, what you've got, then that's fine. Just get into the story. Follow along and we're going to get into the story and we're going to see how God meets us. It's a fantastic story. Let me summarize the context. So verses, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. 
Jesus is on the road. He's moving from Judea, which is sort of in the south. And you can see uh, where I've got there on a map. It says Jerusalem there in the south. That area is Judea generally. You move up there north, you can see kind of that big puddle up there. That's the Sea of Galilee. That would be the region of Galilee. Well, in between those two areas was the territory that they referred to as Samaria. Now, the Samaritans, there's a long, interesting story with them. We don't get sidetracked with that this morning. But they were not ethnically fully Jewish. There had been some intermarriage with the various empires that had conquered things. And so, ethnically, they were a little bit mixed. But the thing that caused the real conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans was the Samaritans, because of this intermarriage, they wove in various ideas from paganism into the worship of Yahweh. So if you walked over east of the Jordan and interacted with all of the tribes over there, those Gentiles would worship other gods And the Jews worshipped Yahweh. But the Samaritans and the Jews had extra tension. doesn't like it when I walk over here. If I can't do that, this sermon's going to struggle because I can't keep my feet still. I'm just kidding. But I must be like Samaritan territory over here, right? (laughs) The Samaritans didn't just worship a different God. They polluted the worship of the one true God. So there was a lot of conflict, a lot of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. And that's kind of part of our context. So the other half of this context is it happens in famous territory. And it mentions a well here, uh, Jacob's well at the end of verse 6. And Jesus was wearied from the journey and he sat down by this well. Now, we're not told about this well in Scripture, but it's part of a field and Uh, You can go there today. It's in the city of Nablus in the West Bank, and it's still there, and everybody knows, yeah, this was Jacob's well. And that plays an important part in the story as we go on. And again, if if you've read any of the Old Testament texts, just keep that filed away for the moment. So all of that is just our setup. That's the context for the story. So let's look at verse 7 through 15. Follow with me if you have a Bible. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, I see that you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did all his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Let's just pause there for a moment. 
So you and I, we're removed uh, a long way from this practice, but it would have been much more common for her to come out uh, early in the morning when it was cool uh, to draw water for the day's works. And so she's either not planned enough or it seems implied that maybe she's coming out here to be alone. She's come at the hour of the day when nobody else will probably be there, perhaps on purpose. And so Jesus is sitting there and he asks her for a drink and it catches her completely off guard for a lot of reasons. She's a woman and a man wouldn't speak. In this culture, a man wouldn't just normally address a woman uh, out in public, especially strangers, especially alone. Now, she also points out that she is a Samaritan and that he's a Jew. Some kind of accent or clothing or something made this uh, clear to her that he wasn't from there. And, and she says, well, why are you talking to me? I mean, like, you know that I'm a Samaritan. And John gives us this clue just to catch us up on because he knew that we would be reading it centuries later. Just, you know, Jews and Samaritans don't have any dealings together. They don't, they don't associate together. They didn't associate together because it made them unclean. They didn't just worship a false god like all of the other Gentiles. And that barrier will be totally dismantled by the end of the New Testament as well beginning in Acts chapter 10 and do all that. But it wasn't just any other Gentile. They profaned the worship of the one true God. Jews didn't associate with them for lots of reasons. And Jesus asks for a drink from her jar. Again, if you're familiar with any of the Old Testament story, the food laws... That's pretty close contact. Jesus obviously isn't worried about getting corrupted by this woman. And so in asking for a drink, Jesus blows up all kinds of social and religious expectations. She's totally off, caught off guard by it, uh, much less asking for a drink. And then his response throws her another curve and he shifts the entire conversation. Well, why are you asking me for a drink? She's just moving through life. She's just there to get water. Her eyes are not on anything in particular other than the moment. But why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus pokes her mind with another question. Well, if you knew who it was that's talking to you, you'd ask him for a drink. Now, normal human psychology, he's inviting her to ask the question, who is this asking her? She hasn't gotten it yet. She hasn't gotten it yet. And he speaks about this gift of God, this, this inviting phrase, which we sang about here is beautiful, this living water. How do I get this? Jesus is the gift and the giver. The living water is a metaphor for having life in him. Now, her response is wonderful. Look at verse 12. Are you better than our father Jacob? I mean, did you catch that? 
He's asked her, if you knew who was speaking to you, do you think you're greater than our father Jacob? I would love to know what Jesus is thinking in that moment that he doesn't say. Oh, sister, like, you have no idea. John does that in a lot of places, by the way. I'm not going to list them for you. I'm going to invite you to go find them. Uh, But John is a fun, fun storyteller. Now, notice here also, she says, are you greater than our father, Jacob? And so she can't help but bring up the religious debate between the Jews and the Samaritans. Jesus doesn't feel the need to go fix her right away. Okay, this part's free. Just gonna stand over here and make this part free. Just think about that as you do social media this afternoon, okay? We don't have to fix everybody right away. Jesus has something bigger in mind. He just lets that lay. And then he draws a contrast between the well and the living water. And he says, this water is just plain water. It's going to leave you thirsty again. But the water that I'll give you, you'll never thirst again. And she says, I like that. That sounds good. How do I get that? And that leads us into the next little section. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, but you say that it's in Jerusalem, the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So he tells her, well, you want the water? Okay, go call your husband. Maybe it's thinking some kind of official transaction's going to happen. He says, okay, well, let's, yeah, let's, let's get to the path of water. Go call your husband. Her answer is really vague. I have no husband. That's both true and completely misleading. Now, what we don't have in the written text, obviously, is the tone of voice. I don't know if she's resigned, as in defeated. I have no husband. Or if she's defiant. I have no husband. Or if she's even trying to intimate that she is available. Well, I have no husband. We don't know. 
It's hard to know all the meaning that she's intending to communicate, but we can see that she has some kind of faith in God, even if she's a bit mixed up. And she wants, and she's interested in what Jesus is talking about. It sounds good to her, but there's some obstacles to deal with first. She said she wants this living water. What isn't said here, and is said elsewhere, that Jesus isn't just one thing that we add to already full life. There's some other loyalties that need to be dealt with first. I have no husband. And to this, Jesus says, you're right. And then he proceeds to document all of her domestic failures. You've been married and divorced five times. And the man that you're with is now not your husband. Now, in our culture, as we read that through our eyes, we tend to think of that probably as on her. And maybe there's certainly a role of that. But in their culture, it would have been much more likely that those divorces were not initiated by her, but by the man she was married to. So having that recounted, rejection, rejection, rejection. Having that put back in her face must have stung. And as readers, I think even today, we, we feel just a tinge of embarrassment for her. And so naturally, she does what any of us would do. She redirects the conversation. Well, I, uh, it's a little too uncomfortable over there, but I see that you're a prophet. Well, let's talk about religion because, you know, we worship on this mountain. And interesting that if we had time to do all the history of it, where they're sitting at this well looks up to Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans had their temple. Well, you say that you should worship in Jerusalem, and our fathers say that we worship on this mountain. Uh, and... Uh, she gives kind of this religious smokescreen. Maybe you've had these conversations with people trying to, to get to real heart stuff and keep sidetracking it with religious debates. But he doesn't let her shift the focus. But he does do an end run on the whole thing. So she throws out kind of religious debate. Well, what about this mountain or that mountain and Samaritans versus Jews? And Jesus goes right around and he said, God is wanting worshipers that worship in spirit and in truth. This is one of the points where we should stop and have a whole bunny trail. That's a sermon all itself. We'll have to leave that to another day. But what he's doing here, he's inviting her to think outside of her spiritual categories. He's, this is an invitation for her to complete, completely reimagine her theological categories. Do you see what she does to him? He's giving her an invitation to solve all of these dilemmas and she brushes him off. Oh, I know that the Messiah is coming and he'll tell us. He'll tell us what it is when, when he gets here. Jesus is totally inviting her to, to think outside herself and her categories. The Messiah will tell us when he gets here. 
And then here comes the, the mic drop, as the kids say, right? Yeah, I'm he. I'm sorry? Yeah, that's me. And in that moment, the foil in the story walks in. The disciples come kind of bumbling, shuffling back into the story. Let's look it up in 27. Just then, the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four more months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor, and others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So the disciples come back, and they're they're surprised that he's talking to a woman. Some would have thought this even scandalous. At minimum, it was somewhat questionable for respectable people. Jesus isn't worried about that. He doesn't defend himself. The disciples walk in on the moment. They're surprised. They don't, they don't ask any questions. I suppose it solves itself because the woman runs off, completely forgetting what she came here to do uh, in the first place, leaves her water jar sitting there. And she runs into the town and she says, come see a guy who told me all my messes. Come see a prophet who told me all that I ever done, I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? And the whole town comes out with her. Everybody's all stirred up. And the disciples, oh, hey, master, you should eat something. Guys, I have stuff going on that you're not aware of. Well, did, did somebody give him some food? Uh, this is this is, this is my food to do this thing. You're worried about food. Guys, look around. And he gives this illustration. Lift up your eyes and look at the fields white for harvest. Lift up your eyes and look around as this whole Samaritan village is coming out to meet them. Look at how she goes about this. She's drawing attention to herself. Think of how much it must have stung to have a total stranger recount to her all her failed life. So Jesus, she wants living water. 
Jesus says, well, we've got to deal with something first. Now, don't get sidetracked. She's living in immorality, but that's not her problem. Her problem is her whole life is a wreck. All her history. Jesus is breaking through, reorienting that, and instead of hiding that, she goes back and is telling people about it. What happened to her? She met living water. She walked away changed. It's right there in a story. It's not theology. It's not order of salvation kind of stuff. She had this encounter with Jesus and uh, he told me all I ever did, but you guys got a medium. He's awesome. What happened? She got wrecked by grace. Transformed her completely. Something really significant happened to her. She walks away changed. And the people respond. The whole town comes out. You could summarize the the rest of the story here, 39 through 42. The Samaritans came out and they were uh, all excited to see Jesus. And many more believed him. And then they tell her, well, it's not just because of your testimony. We believe too because we've heard Jesus ourselves. And they ask him to stay. And there's some lessons here. There's tons of lessons here. I, my, my mind was just running all over the map uh, this week as I tried to, oh my gosh, I've read this probably 100, 200 times. Read tons of books on it. I preached on it a few different times. And again, I go back to it and it's like God's word is never stale. It's always fresh. There's all these fresh threads. I want to just focus on two things. There's a lesson here for us. There's two lessons, really. The lessons from the woman and the lesson from the disciples. The lesson from the woman. If you've heard or read anything about John 4 before, you're familiar with this lesson. is that Jesus loves broken people. You can see that here. People who don't have to have it all together to come to Jesus. And Jesus is quite comfortable to be associated with disrespectable people. He knows the disciples are kind of wondering and he's not worried about keeping them uh, believing that he's respectable. He's quite comfortable with all of whatever weird thoughts that people start to assume. Jesus loves broken people. This woman is broken. She, her story is clearly one of the key messages of the passage. Jesus is breaking barriers. He's breaking social norms. He talks to a woman. He talks to a woman who's sinful. He goes to someone who's a Samaritan. This kingdom that he's proclaiming is not just a Jewish thing. And this is one of the early places where you see that start to kind of, those seeds start to take root. And this thing is going to be much, much bigger. Jesus comes to this broken woman and gives her living water. 
Jesus draws close to broken people. That's one of the main lessons from the text. But I want to delve further into that. Because that much is obvious. If we press a little further, I think there's even some more that really makes that lesson pop. Now, go back through and look and find her name. You won't find it, of course. That's a trick, sorry. She's the unnamed woman, sometimes called the Samaritan woman. Sometimes you hear it called the woman at the well, which is also a great name for this passage. But they stayed there for two, I mean, they got her name. They were there for two days. Her name was known to the Apostle John who recorded this gospel. It's left blank on purpose because she's us. She's every one of us. We all have our dysfunctions. We all have multiple lovers. Dysfunction, shame. We are a mess and deathly afraid to get honest about it. She's us. Let me press a little further on how much Jesus loves and wants to draw close to broken people. This whole scene takes place at a well. And the gospel writer highlights that four, five, six times for us through this passage. This takes place at a well. Now, John loves to do this in his gospel. He just drops little hints. Just drops little hints. If you're familiar with the Old Testament story, you go back into Genesis and the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you may recall that the heroes of the Old Testament met their wives at wells. Now, if you're John's, part of John's original audience, and you're steeped in all of this Old Testament story, at the front end of this, you see Jesus is sitting there alone, and this unmarried woman comes up? Oh. You move, a little, you move forward just a little bit in your chair. Like, like, oh, I think I've seen this before. Where does this go? And John means for us, to make that association. He means for us to grab that image and put it in our mind. And as we go through this text and this dialogue between Jesus and her, to kind of have that in the back of the mind. Now, don't don't misunderstand me. There's nothing inappropriate at all about Jesus' interaction with the woman. And Jesus doesn't marry this Samaritan woman. She's us. We are his bride. Look at the story. Isn't that beautiful? 
She's us. Jesus is meeting his bride at a well. And it's not proper and respectable in any sense of the word. In fact, respectable people do deem it completely scandalous that the Holy Son of God would wed himself to terrible, broken, sinful people like you and I. Jesus loves and draws near to broken people much more than we know. That's lesson one. Lesson two is from the disciples. These are the people that are closest to Jesus. This is on the front end of his ministry at this point, so they haven't been with him for the full three years, but I mean, even if we give them that credit, by the end of three years, they're still kind of wondering how things are supposed to break out, right? But these are the people who are closest to Jesus and they are completely missing what's supposed to be happening and what is happening. The mission of Jesus, the mission that they had been called to join, they're oblivious to it. This woman is having her life transformed right in front of them and they don't see it. There's an entire village crowding out to come meet Jesus. Hey, Master, you need some food? We got, we got lunch. And that's where his phrase comes, lift up your eyes. I'm not sure who I want to be like in this juxtaposition of these two examples in the story. To be honest, I'm not real crazy about identifying with a woman and, and having all the shame kind of thrown back at me. I know that's where I need to be, but that's just me being honest. I do know that I don't want to be like the disciples who look really obtuse and completely miss everything that's going on. But I think I'm more like them than I want to be. I think I move through life as a pastor. Somebody who works with pastors. Why am I so like these guys? I'm the one who has all this learning and this calling and stuff and I move through life oblivious so much of the time. Why did they miss the moment? There's a whole host of reasons that are possibilities and they're all left blank and again I think that's intentional because we can supply some of our own thinking on that. Did they, were they just concerned about food, needs? Were they worried about the social stigma of being connected to a disreputable woman? Ministry's good and all, but master, we need to go to these towns and it, it will, your reputation will be sullied if, if we're not careful to manage this a little bit better. Were they flat out racist? 
just didn't like the Samaritans? Or do they presume that well, this is the Jewish thing, I, the Samaritans aren't even going to be interested, why bother? We don't know any and all of those things could be true or completely something else. But they were wrong and they needed rebuked. They are eyes down. How many times, I'm ashamed at how many times I have missed gospel opportunities because I was obsessed with the next meal. And I mean literally oblivious to the gospel opportunity with the person serving the meal to me. I, I don't want to pin that on anybody else, but I, I, I suspect that I'm not alone. You see, both of these people, the unnamed woman and the disciples, they're both, they, they come to this story with eyes down. They come to this story with focused on the need. They're focused on food. She's focused on water. She has her perspective rattled. Jesus, through these questions, finally prods her awake and she comes to realize what it is. Both of these examples for us are eyes down. But, but why does she wake up to the moment? And at least so far, the disciples are not. Why does she wake up to it and the disciples haven't yet? From this text, it seems that she had been wrecked by grace and they had not yet. The question for us is where are we at? Have we been wrecked by grace? Have we had that kind of moment that completely disrupts everything? If not, would we want it? If I'm honest, I don't know that I do. I mean, I kind of do, but I also know that Coming to the end of myself is scary. Yeah, I don't want to be like the disciples here, but that means I need to lean into my shame and my own brokenness and my need for the gospel and my need for Christ the way the Samaritan woman does. She is the positive example here. She meets Jesus and she's honest about that need. And she immediately can't keep that message to herself. And the moments, I know for myself, the moments where I lack gospel urgency, I think it's because I'm not at all in tune with the really, really radicalness of the good news. I'm not really aware of how much I need Christ of how much I need living water. But when I am aware, it just comes out. It just comes out. It's really easy to move through life eyes down. But the remedy for that is a radical 
experience of grace. So, we have an opportunity. It's a new year. What a gift. You know, God has given us these rhythms to life. You know the verses. Mercies are new every morning. Every sunset and sunrise is a 24-hour cycle. That's a message to us that fresh beginnings are always there if we just want to take it. Same thing with the new year. What a great week we have in front of us. Extra time off, time with family, a chance to be reflective and think about what's working, what's not working, and yeah, New Year's resolutions. I mean, okay, those are good. I mean, you get what I'm saying. But really, gospel resolutions. We have a great opportunity in front of us here. Lord, I need this. Lord, I need this. A chance to draw a line in the sand. A chance to stop and reflect on our current patterns and course. And a chance to make a change for the better. You guys are in a great spot as a church. You've got a new year. You've got a new pastor coming. What an opportunity. What could we do? How could we lean into this gospel of brokenness? What could we do? What could we do? Is there anything we need to change about our church? And I don't know you close enough to know if there is, but just evaluate it. What could we do to make it safe for people like this Samaritan woman? If the Samaritan woman came to your church, would she feel comfortable coming clean? What could we do? As we think about you know, the, the fields around us, people driving by, what, what could we do? It's a great opportunity. It's not bad news here. It's good news. And if I see myself in the disciples, the good news is God inspired this text to awaken me. So I don't have to stay there. I don't have to be in that spot. I can continue to change and move forward. What an opportunity. I'll leave you with this. Uh, You've got a new pastor coming to candidate here in the next few weeks, I believe. So every church, every church wants to bless the new pastor and his family. Uh, We've been on the receiving end of that three different times. Uh, It's real and it's heartfelt. And I will, on behalf of he and his family, I will thank him already, or thank you already for whatever it is you're planning to do. Here's something to think about. If you want to bless your new pastor, every pastor dreams about joining a congregation and a church family that's really transformed by grace and is really excited to go out and share with people. I met a guy who's told me all I've ever done wrong and made it safe. 2022, an opportunity for all of us. Let me pray for us and our worship team's gonna come. 
God, I don't know what it looks like for South Canyon. I don't know what it looks like for each one of us individually. I'm not even sure I know what it would look like for me personally to be broken by your grace yet once more uh, and to have my heart changed so that my eyes really see the world as you do. But Lord, we, we dare to believe you want to do this. We dare to believe that you want to use sinful, broken people like us. God, give us the courage to look and stare down our fear and to pray, Lord, come and break us. Father, take these stories with us today as we go. It would rattle around in our hearts and minds that we would talk about it over lunch together, that we would plot a chorus how we could be a part of your mission as people, as families, and as a church. Lord, in your mercy, do this, we pray. Amen.